but then behaviors that are more in the gender category. Like, we can touch on it if you want me to interject at all, being like, yes, and this is because Darwin is a guy. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Percolations podcast. I'm Regine, and today we're going to be talking about gender and sex in STEM, the sciences, technology, engineering, and math. Today, I'm joined by three wonderful people, M, J, and Anna. Hi folks, I'm here. I am a queer Jewish person and a friend of Regine's. I am passionate about marine biology and ecology. Catch me at the beach geeking out about algae. Also catch me teaching middle school science. Hi, I'm Jay and I am an Asian American male. I am a student teacher who is interested in STEM, uh, the current stock market and pop culture. And I'm Anna. I am also a queer Jewish person who is friends with Regine. And some things I like are dogs, plants, and using science to learn more about humans. And something I dislike is cis-heteronormative patriarchy and when science is used to defend it. Before we jump in, I suppose it's important to give a bit of background for this podcast and this episode in particular. Um, I'm, a 20, I'm currently a 23-year-old aspiring physics teacher working on my master's in Los Angeles, California. Sometimes I write about what's on my mind at my blog, ayellowblog.tumblr.com. Podcasts have become a really interesting medium for sharing ideas, especially living in LA, where so much time is spent in the car, and podcasts are a great way to make that time engaging. Even better about podcasts is that they're such a collaborative endeavor and can really engage people in a way that is different from writing. So I've been wanting to work on one for a while. As for this particular episode, my master's cohort is currently enrolled in a critical media literacy class that aims to analyze and critique media as well as create countermedia as a form of resistance. And since we are all science and math teachers, we've been tasked in creating a piece of countermedia that challenges notions of STEM in the media and in the world. This episode focuses on gender and sex in STEM because this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart and at the front of my mind when I'm teaching. I'm a queer person of color who is perceived as a woman, and this has greatly impacted my experiences in STEM. As an undergraduate studying biomedical engineering, this looked like fighting for time to speak to professors and TAs, working with very few women of color in my classes, and feeling overlooked and inadequate in many situations. As a teacher, this means aiming for equity in my classroom, regulating participation from students, encouraging young girls of color to pursue STEM, and modeling an alternative image of a scientist. As I taught the genetics unit of biology last year, this meant challenging concepts of families, gender, and sex, which is something one of our guests today will touch on. Of course, there are many things involved when it comes to STEM access. In today's episode, you'll hear stories from several of my fellow teachers about what ideas in STEM they hope to challenge. M discusses the construction and misconceptions of biological sex. Get wrecked. J talks about the statistics of boys and girls pursuing STEM in high school, college, and as a career, and correlations that may provide insight to how to better structure a classroom curriculum. And Anna addresses sexism in Darwin's descent of man and origin of species. Get wrecked, Darwin. Let's get started. So, as I said earlier, I'm a middle school science teacher. And I'm really passionate about teaching some of the more social aspects of science because there's this really weird dichotomy that people have where you think that science is all about these absolute facts that like they're either true or they're not and we teach true science. Uh, But in actuality, facts can be twisted or manipulated to serve a purpose. And I think that giving young people the ability to recognize this happening and parse scientific information for themselves is a huge issue in social equality and people's ability to make informed choices. Uh, One thing that many people don't realize is that the idea of biological sex is often twisted to serve a purpose, which really hits close to home for me as a genderqueer person. Um, I don't even think it's really a conscious decision on the part of many scientists, but since they don't experience any form of LGBTQ plus gender, uh, they don't think of it as a possibility. Instead, there's an automatic and very natural assumption that others will experience the same as them. Uh, So this is extended to how they interpret observations of the natural world and end up creating these biological sex binaries. 
in other words, the idea that there must be a binary of males and females in any species is because people couldn't imagine a system that didn't have them. Uh, the very idea that sex needs a binary is the result that we have now. Take, for example, uh, bees. We call the main reproductive bee the queen bee because she lays eggs and has a fully functioning ovary. Okay, ovaries laying eggs, that creates a female. The drone bees provide the sperm for the queen bee, making them the males in our binary. Perfect. Binary of males and females. But then there's also the worker bees. Uh, and these bees, they have underdeveloped ovaries, so not quite the same. They don't lay eggs. They're not reproductive. So clearly, they're female, but not, um, not really sure where to put them. But scientists shrug and move on, saying, okay, we'll put them in the female category and we'll maintain this binary. But that's inaccurate because they're not 100% what we called female earlier. Um, so they're only classed into female because we needed them to fit into the binary. It makes much more sense to just have a third biological sex for them. Um, and there's no need to put human binary genders onto bees when they clearly have three different biological sexes. So why even put them into binary in the first place? So with bees, you're saying there's a queen bee, drone bees, and worker bees. So really, three totally different sexes with differently developed sex organs. Yeah, and that's just one example. Uh, consider for a moment the plethora of fish in the ocean that have the ability to physically and chemically alter their reproductive systems. Depending on various factors like the environment, the current sex ratio of the population, and even just their age. This is exactly what happens with like sequential hermaphrodism. Ooh, sequential hermaphroditism. <laughs> Can you break that one down for us? Sure thing. Uh, take, for example, everyone's favorite lost Pixar fish, Nemo. If the movie was scientifically accurate, Nemo would be a... Ugh, words are hard. Sequential hermaphrodite. Uh, clownfish are sequential hermaphrodites. They are all born with male reproductive systems. And once they grow big enough, they develop female reproductive systems in place. Wow. So I guess that wouldn't have really fit into Pixar's family-friendly narrative, huh? Uh, it depends on if you consider LGBTQ plus topics uh, family-friendly or not. But there's nothing inherently wrong with it. And this is a naturally occurring wonder of evolution. It's not, only, not the only one either. Consider for a moment the California sheephead. If there are no male sheephead around, the female fish will gape their jaws at each other in uh, what's called a display competition. The winner of the competition will then physically transition to having male reproductive systems. This way, no matter what, the population of fish will always be able to reproduce. Plenty of species also simply live their entire lives with both male and female reproductive systems at the same exact time. This includes many snails, slugs, and even earthworms. Honestly, it seems like it would be much more efficient to just have both. It is more efficient. The commonality of these species breaking away from biological sex binary is no accident. In fact, it's an evolutionary advantage to have all of the reproductive pieces in a single organism. If the organism finds a mate in the wild and they both have all the reproductive pieces necessary, they guarantee that they can reproduce. Since evolutionary fitness is all about how many offspring can be produced, this is evolutionarily advantageous and is selected for, not against. Okay, so far you've given us examples of animals, but what about humans? The binary is so present in human society, so um, doesn't it have a scientific foundation? Well, first off, biological sex is wildly varied even in humans. Don't forget that intersex people, or human beings that are born with mixed or what scientists sometimes say is atypical, chromosomes, hormones, genitals, or other reproductive characteristics. And these people exist and live perfectly happy and healthy lives. Our way of deciding if a baby has male or female reproductive system is measuring the reproductive organ because the clitoris and the penis actually grow from the same exact tissue. If it's under three quarters of an inch, the baby is considered female. 
If the tissue is over an inch, the baby is lumped in with the males. This is an arbitrary scale though, and the gray area of about three quarters of an inch to an inch exists. What about chromosomes, like X and Y chromosomes? Don't those sex chromosomes make it pretty clear what a person's biological sex should be? Yeah, so we do learn about these things called sex chromosomes, where if you have XX, that equals a female reproductive system, and XY, that equals a male reproductive system. What you don't often learn about is all the variations of human sex chromosomes that people can have. Because genetics isn't actually perfect and is a lot more complicated than what's usually taught in schools. Um, So what about XXX? Or the fact that 1 in 500 people are born with XXY sex chromosomes. XXY chromosomes don't affect a person's ability to live a happy and healthy life, um, although they do sometimes lower the sperm count of their XY counterparts. Uh, Do some species have very defined binaries in biological sex? Sure. And there are definitely species with sexual dimorphism, which gives scientists a very clear binary to work from. But evidence shows that this is definitely not something that can be applied across the board. Remember, scientists who interpret the data often experience their lives in a binary. So that is what they see in the data. There are too many examples from both the animal kingdom and from within our own species that clearly show that biological sex as a strict binary across species just doesn't make sense. M's segment showed us how science can sometimes be twisted to serve societal systems and expectations. Just to be clear, moving forward, in our previous segment we were talking about biological sex, but in this next segment we're going to be talking more about gender um, in terms of the binary gender of men and women, boys and girls, um, because that's a lot about how uh, we get statistics on this kind of information. So uh, these two things are not necessarily the same thing, um, just to differentiate between our biological sex that we were talking about and how we're going to be talking about gender moving forward. So Jay's going to tell us a little bit about some statistics uh, regarding the gender gap in STEM. Hi, my name is Jay, and I am interested in learning more about the gender gap in STEM, um, especially for my classroom. I looked up a few articles by Stanford, Cornell, and by the UC education system, and wanted to ask you all about your own experiences majoring in STEM. So here are some statistics in American high school public education. First, it's uh, research seems to show that when girls learn in an environment with other high-performing girls, uh, they perform uh, better than when girls learn uh, in a co-ed environment. That makes me think of so many things. Like what? Um... Like, that fact could be really easily twisted to be super sexist really fast. Mm. Like, mm. like um, it could be twisted really quickly to be like, oh, it's because the girls are no longer being distracted by the boys. Oof. They're so hormonal. Yikes. And they just want to be focusing and making eyes at the guys. Oh, my God. It's like... That could be twisted really easily. Yeah, that's funny. I didn't even think about it that way because for me, what I was thinking was like, no guys around, then you don't have feel all that pressure. Um, I know for me, in a lot of college lecture settings, it was always you know guys who were speaking up, raising their hands, asking questions, and so I just felt like I didn't have space to actually mm-hmm. communicate to my teachers what I needed. And so being in an all-girl environment would be really awesome because then you don't really feel that pressure. But I didn't even think about what you're saying. This is probably more accurate to what's actually happening. I'm just throwing out there what some people may interpret <laughs> right. it as. You guys as. are both talking about the distraction aspect of it, but in different ways. Yeah. There's also that statistic about... Um, I don't remember it exactly, but it's something about like people hear uh, women taking up about one-third of the space, like a two-to-one ratio, and think that that is equal. Do you know the Mm. statistic I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Could you explain a little bit more of that? So, like, they did an experiment where they recorded a college classroom, I think it was, and they timed out how long people who were women were talking versus people who were men were talking, and found when they asked people, like, what percentage of the conversation do you think was women talking? What percentage of the conversation do you think was men talking? 
And people reliably overestimated how much women were talking to a point where if a woman was only talking something like one third of the time, I want to say, um, people interpreted that as they were dominating the conversation. Um, and that's why we end up with a lot of like TV shows where it's like one girl and two guys because that's perceived as equal because people hear it and think that women are, are over dominating the conversation. So I wonder if like that is also at play when you're at an all girls school because it, uh, is leading to girls not being dominated by boys speaking and no one's really policing them for dominating the conversation. So the study that Emma was talking about previously about women being perceived as talking more is by Deborah Tannen, who is a university professor at Georgetown University. Um, the, she's the author of You Just Don't Understand Men and Women Talking, so you can look up her work there to find more about that statistic. Yeah, I think, though, it's such... It, it's not a solution by any means, like the idea that we have to separate people by perceived gender, which is already really problematic in itself, and you could see how even with young people, that's there's going to be issues with that. Um, but the idea that that's what we have to do in order to like make enough space for one group to speak up or to have it be a safe learning environment, um, that doesn't actually get at the root issues. Like We should be able to coexist based on identity and actually resolve the root issues right of like well why I mean I'm just thinking as a teacher if 80% of the time I ask for volunteers it's boys that's something that I can directly work to try to even out the ratio or talk with students who identify as girls and try to figure out why they don't feel safe speaking up in the classroom and like having that dynamic, which actually does reflect what happens in the outside world, then it's our responsibility to figure out, okay, how can we break this down and change it within the classroom? Because just, I mean, the real world isn't separated in that way. And if, if girls don't, if girls aren't allowed to take up space in the classroom, that's mirroring what is actually happening in the world. So then by separating it, like that doesn't actually force anybody to work on what we need to work on to move past that. Yeah, I was, yeah, what you're saying, I was definitely thinking about how we learn in all of our teaching classes about how school is really like a huge place for socialization and learning how to engage with other people. And if you have an environment that's not reflective of that, when are you ever going to learn how to socialize? Who's yeah. going to teach you? Because as teachers, we're the ones who like you were saying, regulate classroom participation is going to teach you that um, like all people should be participating or you should not be treating a certain group a certain way. So, yeah, I think definitely the statistic is revealing, I think, um, about what about like the conditions that girls might experience in STEM environments, but um, doesn't really orient towards the solution. Or maybe it's like what Anna was saying. Yeah. Do you think, um, so having very intentional, like, <clears throat> excuse me, participation structures, um, calling more on, um, like, non-male students to um, have class discussions, do you think that might address or, like, combat some of the uh, societal problems that we see in terms of, like, the gender gaps? Do you, do you see that as a classroom solution? Um, personally, I think yes, um, especially I teach physics, and that's one that's usually very, very dominated by boys, and doing things like equity sticks, pulling, you know, random students to participate really helps with that, and having those really explicit types of participation structures, like, okay, partner A is going to talk now, partner B is going to talk now, partner C is going to talk, to really regulate that participation um, is important, but on top of that, I think it is important to explicitly address that things like boys talking more is something that might happen in your classroom um, and definitely something I'd like to talk about at the beginning of the school year this coming year is you know the the just like the male dominance in science fields and what that means and then what that means for our classroom environment and how we can support each other in participating that good good norm setting <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. Like, we talk about representation and putting posters on the walls and that kind of thing, and that's great, like, putting posters of women in STEM on the walls, but if it's not, like, an active effort every day in the classroom to balance out those roles, then that's not enough. The next statistics uh, that I wanted to share was that um, most girls, uh, when they go into college, a lot of the times when they speak with professors um, for advice, and if the girls aren't doing well, the professors say, maybe STEM isn't for you, or like, maybe you should try like, you know, switching majors. But um, when boys go to professors when they need advice, um, their experiences uh, show that most of the professors were more willing to help. I just have one question, and I'm really curious. I doubt you actually know this, but I want to know how many of those professors were boys. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. (laughs) The issue is like not even just that like all professors treat like men and women differently, but it's like the majority of professors are men to start with. And they're white men. Yeah, exactly. Like I. Like, I'm thinking about this one or two possible engineering professors I had who are women and how much pressure they had on them to be, like, the matronly figure of our entire department. Mm -hmm. And, no, for real, though, like, people would be like, oh, can you please be my advisor? Because they just knew they were better. They actually, especially all the girls would go to them. And, what, that's so unfair to, like, the two or three, like, women professors that, what like if you if you hope that half of your cohort is women what like half of your cohort is going to be advised by you that's ridiculous and like that the male or the men teachers aren't expected to do that kind of work that yeah that's sorry i interjected to you but continue oh you're good keep going on that rant (laughs) living for it yeah, I think that's that's probably more what it's about is that it's the representation in the faculty and at a high level, like we're so far behind in terms of, I mean, there's more representation now among student populations, but still so little among the faculty and not having a faculty that's representative of your student population. And we struggle with this too, right, in the schools that we teach in. Um, I think it's yeah it's harder to imagine yourself excelling in the field when you don't see anybody who looks like you doing the work and you don't have anybody to mentor you um and like you said even if there are a couple you're not going to get that same level of attention or support as if it's like the whole staff looks like you and supports your dreams you know And I think that also goes back to a little bit of why people might be like, oh, maybe STEM isn't for you because if out of a department of, I'm going to pick a random number, 10, what's fair? Eight are men, two are women. Yeah, that's probably right. That's probably about accurate. Okay. Um, Eight are men, two are women. If you go to a, a guy faculty advisor or a guy professor struggling with a class, they're going to be like, maybe STEM isn't for you because what they're used to seeing is Mm -hmm. eight to two representation. So they're used to seeing men are good at this. Women can be good, but there's only two of them, you know? So clearly it's harder. Um, And I think also there's such a level of like, when you're choosing what field to go into or what types of classes you want to take, at a certain point, you just don't want to be, like, going against the grain all the time. And I know for me, like, I took a computer science class and was good at it. And I didn't think I would be. And my TA was like, oh, you should think about doing this. And when I just thought about, like, my experience in those classes and what it felt like in the lectures and it, like, I just didn't want to be working constantly in those environments and constantly feel like I was going to be pushing up against something Um, as someone who identifies as a woman so it's like the it might not be like I had an explicitly hostile experience because of being a woman in those classes but I would still make the choice to do something else because I don't yeah I don't want to subject myself to more of that in the future yeah I mean that was almost exactly the same thing for me I 
you know, majored in engineering in undergrad and definitely did really well um, in it. But when I thought about going into engineering industry and thinking about all the times I had to work with in group projects where I was the only person who wasn't a guy and how little my opinion was taken into consideration and how much extra work I would sometimes have to do because of like the oversight of other group members who were guys, it just felt so overwhelming. And I was thinking, you know, if I'm going to have to work in groups for the rest of my career where I just have to sit and listen to other people talk at me and not listen to me, that's not something I want to pursue. You know, I don't have the stamina to sit and be lectured at just so that I can like do my work. Um, and I think that's kind of, that's kind of a question or a statistic you were going to get into a bit later about why uh, like women don't pursue STEM after college. Um, I know for me that was a huge thing. I just thought about that environment like Anna was saying and thought that's not going to be a good place for me. And on top of that, like thinking about what it takes to be a professor or to be in academia, that's also something that's not very supportive of women. First of all, the like primarily like men or environment but things like maternity leave or like being a caretaker or things yeah like you know having to take time off for those kinds of things and then the there's not enough support for women who are professors when they're bombarded by like so many uh what's the word like they just have so many responsibilities that they're not paid for Mm. you know having to mentor a significant portion of their classes because you know, people see them, they're like, oh, motherly figure, I can go to her, I can talk to her. And then she's mothering the entire class. Like, <laughs> Yeah, the emotional labor. The emotional labor is huge. For. Yeah, that just male professors don't have to deal with and um, makes it easier to be a man in academia. Because when you go into that, you think, you know, I'm going to go into this and I'm going to do my research. But when you're a woman in academia, okay, how am I going to survive how am I going to balance all of these things I want to do? How am I going to support all my students who are inevitably going to come to me? Um, and if you don't support them, you're, you know, a horrible woman who's not supporting other women. Exactly, exactly. It's like that wonderful catch-22. Yeah, and then you just become closed off and all about your work or something. <laughs> like, what a <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> something, and maybe I'll get into this later in mind because it was something I was reading about. Um, in relation to just gender roles um, is that men are like expected to produce and women are expected to reproduce but that Oof. carries over <laughs> to the type of work that we do where oh. like I know where like you're saying the emotional labor like if you think of reproduction as just things that have to be done over and over in addition to like literal reproduction it's like the caretaking the cleaning the cooking, like things that are done over and over that really hold communities and everything together but aren't visible. And then men are expected to do like the production of actual, <laughs> I don't know. You physical, mean go fight more? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some Sorry, like things really that are, things that are more visible and more easily praised. And I think that it's like a tragic and extreme way of thinking about it but when we think about then the types of work that we're actually consider or um, encouraged to do mm-hmm. like men are and in our capitalist structure like men are encouraged to go out and produce and make new things and make a lot of money and women are encouraged into the like more caretaking fields where that work is like absolutely necessary but not as visible because it's stuff that has to be done over and over and it's not paid for but there's like this whole other realm of things which is like what type of work has become like men's work and what type of work has become women's work so for example the like computers quote unquote computers of the 60s and 70s the women who would do coding for things like nasa for all the huge major um engineering companies that was women's work because it was like what anna was saying you know reproducing just wrote mathematics coding etc etc but with the with the way that like we thought about coding and programming has changed it has shifted into a more like male-dominated field now that it's more about creating code that's like brand new although that was like work was pioneered by women more specifically usually black and brown women who because it wasn't seen as valuable work back then same with things like um like teaching you know 
or no, I'm gonna take that out. Get rid of that. Um, same <laughs> with like the like biology, for example, which used to be a very male-dominated field, but has like since opened up to definitely more women in it. And um, so now that people are kind of looked down on that field because it's become more of a women-dominated field. Mm-hmm. Like it's not considered a hard science because it has been opened up to women. So, yeah. I mean, that's not even touching on. Um how people are perceived in each field. So if you have a woman in a male-dominated field, she's often seen as bossy or domineering or any of those like kind of negative words. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you see a male in a female-led industry, like um, a male chef or a stay-at-home dad, they're usually praised like beyond belief or put in leadership roles very very quickly Mm, yeah definitely in teaching that one happens a lot Mm -hmm. teachers who are men are like really really like highly recognized i mean it's important right because it's important to have good like male role models for young people but yeah i think for nursing too Mm -hmm. it's like male nurses are sought out more than female Mm -hmm. nurses Mm -hmm. and it's just like oh uh, we would rather hire the male nurse than the female nurse and they would attribute like because of their strain mm-hmm. they could pick up more things or like they're more willing to work certain like mm-hmm. hours and like they justify it with like these bullet points and it's just I see you I see you <laughs> those are all the uh, points that I wanted to speak to you about sure cool. do you want to do a little closing or something or closing thank you Jay <laughs> no, thank you thank you, Jay. thank you everyone So with Jay, we just talked about some statistics, looking at the difference between boys and girls, men and women in STEM, studying sciences in high school and middle school and elementary school, and then we talked a bit about our experiences in college. Um, So now we're going to spin it over to Anna, who's going to talk a little bit about Charles Darwin's origin of species and um, descent of man. man. Thanks, Anna. (laughs) We're descending into chaos is what we're doing. Hi, my name is Anna, and today I'll be critiquing two pieces of media that many consider to be the foundational texts for evolutionary biology, and they were both written by Charles Darwin. So the first is On the Origin of Species. It was published in 1859. Basically, this is the official intro of the theory of natural selection into the world of science. The second, which is called The Descent of Man, was published about 12 years later, and it focuses on the theory of sexual selection. So this is basically a type of natural selection about sex, and it says that members of one biological sex will choose mates of the other sex to mate with based on certain traits, and will compete with members of the same sex for access to members of the opposite sex. Confusing, but important to point out, we've already listened to Emma's amazing segment, Already issues, right? We're talking about biological sex and a binary and opposite sex. What does opposite sex mean if we don't exist in the biological sex binary? We'll talk more about that. Anyway, these texts are considered the foundation, the foundation of evolutionary biology. Although they did receive pushback at the time when they were published, they've at this point been widely accepted as the unifying theory of life sciences. (laughs) So, very important pieces of media. And since they were published, Darwin's work has been heavily critiqued, especially with regards to its ideologies about race. The full title of the text, which not many people know, is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Yikes! Wow! So, this original title does more than just hint at the really fundamentally hierarchical and racist nature of Darwin's theory. And, like I said, at this point, it's pretty well documented and widely known that Darwin's theory was used to fuel biological racism, theories of eugenics, across the 19th and 20th centuries. So, this idea of social Darwinism, or the theory that people and groups of people are subject to the same laws of natural selection as plants and other animals are, has been used for centuries to justify racism and colonialism. I think what's a little bit less widely known and discussed is how Darwin talked about sex and gender, and how his theory of natural selection really explicitly perpetuated the belief that men are inherently superior to women. So that's what I'm going to focus on today. 
I do want to point out again, Darwin made no distinction between biological sex and gender. People probably weren't doing it in those days. Um, and still today, scientific research is generally set up within the binary system. So those words are used a little bit interchangeably, but again, they're not. And we discussed that a little bit. Get wrecked, binary. <laughs> binary. All right, so first question. In terms of social Darwinism, I know a lot of people think that Darwin's theory was basically misappropriated or taken by scientists who then used it for their own agenda. Is that true, or was Darwin himself really explicitly pushing racist and sexist beliefs? Yeah, so I think that's a common misconception, that Darwin was kind of this progressive, innocent scientist, and then his ideas were taken out of context and misused, misused for racist and sexist purposes. I mean, that's probably true in some ways, but if you actually go back and look at Darwin's work, he had very conventional and, frankly, very offensive views about race and gender. He himself said that white people were evolutionarily more advanced than black people. He used his theory of natural selection to explain the racial hierarchy in society. And then in terms of gender or sex, again, Darwin fundamentally believed that women were inferior to men. He said that. He used his theory of natural selection to justify subjugation of women. So I think that's an important point because in academia, especially in science, we tend to separate the author and their views from their research or theories. And we often hear or we might even give excuses, right, about how they lived in a different time so we can't hold them accountable for their views. Or maybe we want to say that we can still value their contributions to the field even if they held problematic ideas. Um, And this doesn't happen just in science, right? It happens like in entertainment and lots of different fields um, where we value people's quote-unquote genius, right? Or ability to create some kind of product. And then we just choose to ignore their ideologies and behavior, even if those things really influence the work that they created. So people who are part of the dominant culture especially tend to get a free pass. And while Darwin's work has been obviously extremely influential in terms of giving the life sciences this really fundamental theory we also have to acknowledge and deconstruct some of the ways that his work is biased and perpetuates certain ideologies specifically of the white cis heteropatriarchy oh wow so all right lay it down for us what was darwin saying about women then all right so i'm going to give a few direct quotes they're from both origin of species and descent of man Um, Remember, for some context, he's talking about natural selection and sexual selection, and he's basing this work off of his research and observations, but at the time, it wasn't widely accepted. All right, so he says, With mankind, the differences between the sexes are greater than in most species, but not so great as in some, for instance, the mandrel. Man, on an average, is considerably taller, heavier, and stronger than woman, with square shoulders and with more plainly pronounced muscles. Man is more courageous, <laughs> pugnacious, and energetic than women, and nice. has a more inventive genius. Oh, no, he did not! Yeah, he did. He oh. did. His brain is absolutely larger. Absolutely <laughs> larger? But whether relatively oh. to the larger size of the body in comparison with that of the woman has not, I believe, been fully ascertained. Were women allowed in schools at that time? Oh, my God. In women, the face is rounder, the jaws and the base of the skull smaller, the outlines of her body rounder, and parts more prominent, and her pelvis is broader than in a man. But this latter character may perhaps be considered as a primary rather than secondary sexual character. She comes to maturity at an earlier age than man. So he's talking about secondary sex characteristics, which... Are a thing. I think as Em talked about earlier, there are observed sex differences. But then he just takes it really <laughs> off course. Yeah, question? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. When he says in parts more prominent, is he talking about boobs? <laughs> Honestly, maybe. I don't, it, it's really hard to, <laughs> to say. What's he talking about there? <laughs> I, yeah, he might be. He might be. I'm just really intrigued by this more inventive genius. Right. So that's where it's okay. He's talking about observed differences, and then he takes it to like courageous, pugnacious, energetic, and more inventive genius. It's like, bro, did you really need to throw that in there? 
Where is this? What these observations right, from, exactly. his, from his what, journal or what? Okay. Where is the research? All right, I'm going to carry on. So, <laughs> um, this one's kind of similar, but oh, a little worse? I don't know. Okay, he says, man is more powerful in body and mind than woman. And in the savage state, he keeps her in a far more abject state of bondage than does the male of any other animal. What? Therefore, it is not surprising that he should have gained the power of selection. What does that even mean? So he's talking about sexual selection and basically looking across different species, like which sex has the power of choice, right? They call it in sexual selection, like which is the one doing the choosing about who they mate with. And... Isn't it in the his, women? Okay, sorry. It can yeah, go both so ways. It can, but... it can go both ways, and there's different arguments. But in this quote, he's basically saying that because men have such control over women, it ends up being the men who are doing the choosing. Okay, yeah, um, right. Uh huh. So, so that's, that's a Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's his take on sexual selection. Um, all right, this one. Is also really unnecessary. Okay, he says, The chief distinction in the intellectual powers of the two sexes is shown by man attaining to a higher eminence in whatever <laughs> he takes up than women can attain, whether requiring deep thought, reason, or imagination, or merely using the senses and hands. What? If two lists were made of the most eminent men and women in poetry, <laughs> painting, sculpture, music, comprising composition and performance, history, science, and philosophy, with half a dozen names under each subject. The two lists would not bear comparison. That like, doesn't even make sense. This is not science. This is not science. If you're, Women weren't even allowed to do those things. Right, exactly. So it's like this really extreme extrapolation from his so-called observations. Yes. And this also goes back to what we were talking about earlier a little bit with um, just people not being represented equally in the workforce yeah. and people being undervalued when they are in that workforce. Yeah, there's this made me think there's this um, piece that I read in college called Why Are There No Great Women Artists? And it was basically like taking us through the steps of when you, yeah, when you look at lists of who's achieved prominence and you see more men, like you have to think about why that is. Does that, does that actually mean that there's no women who are producing great art? No, of course not. There's so many structural factors that prevent women from getting to that point. Um, but then it's like confusing the cause and the effect. And yeah. it's bad science. This is a basic causation versus exactly. correlation. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Test. Like, this is like saying, oh yes, every U.S. president has been a man. Exactly. So obviously <laughs> women are not fit for this position. Like, right. what? Right. It, it is like a cause, correlation causation issue. Darwin, um, go back to school. Yeah. <laughs> don't understand science yeah. or math or math okay or so there's just one more um really sums it up he's talking about how traits get passed down and he thought that men passed on more traits to their offspring than men <laughs> i know Okay, poor Darwin. So he said, The characters thus gained will have been been transmitted more fully to the male than to the female offspring. Thus, man has ultimately become superior to woman. Wow. Dun, dun, dun. Maybe we can put some music in there. So, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Wow, these are just a few quotes out of two admittedly very long texts. I think it's important that we talk about them, right, and acknowledge that this was a part of Darwin's original work. Um, he did receive pushback at the time, but not because of these beliefs. The pushback was because people were still in creationism mode and that there were other theories flying around at the time. Um, these views were pretty much solid culturally and then have just continued to be reinforced in science and in other fields. All right, so you gave us the quotes, so let's move on to your critique of Darwin's work. What does it mean that these views were published uh, in scientific texts? Yeah, I mean, I think the medium in which the text is, was published is really important, right? Scientific literature does have its own academic language and process for being reviewed and published, and once scientific texts are accepted, we often think of them as unbiased facts. Um, and they hold a lot of authority in our culture. So, it, like I said, it did take a while, as a lot of people know, for Darwin's theory of natural selection to be fully accepted. And it's continuing to change as we learn more about inheritance and epigenetics and all those things. But 
Um, in this case, the idea of a gender binary that Darwin was suggesting as being really fundamental to sexual selection, um, it holds a certain level of authority and it's become scientific fact. And the fact that it's in this text... Um, written by a scientist that's probably one of the most famous scientists ever and one of the most widely respected um, is problematic. And so there actually was a lot of discourse at the time between scientists who agreed and disagreed. And I did want to mention a woman actually who published a book in response to... um, Actually, it was in response to Origin of Species and then Descent of Man came out later and she kind of had more to say. Um, but she published a book called The Sexes Throughout Nature. It was meant to be a direct challenge to Darwin, um, and she talked about, basically looked at Darwin's data and then reanalyzed it on her own. So she made charts looking at other species, so like plants, insects, fish, aquatic mammals, birds, herbivores. Like, I'm curious if she talked about, um, like, bees or any of the fish that you were talking about earlier. So her name was Antoinette Brown Blackwell, um... And she wrote a letter to Darwin, and in his response letter, he titled it Dear Sir. Oh, fun fact. (laughs) I know, with a name like Antoinette, you would think, but maybe not. Women can't be scientists, thought Darwin. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. They don't Um, have the mental capacities. The inventive genius. (laughs) The inventive genius. So I think the fact that it's a scientific text gives it a lot of authority in our culture, and then... The fact that, you know, beyond Darwin's lifetime, he has this reputation and authority that still, when we read it today, we're like, oh, he must know what he's talking about. So then how does Darwin's work relate to social justice? You already kind of touched on it, but who does this text advantage or disadvantage and what are the implications for us, especially as science teachers? Yeah, so I think really the central issue with these texts and with so much scientific knowledge that's produced is that it's using scientific authority to perpetuate and reinforce negative ideas about certain groups that already exist in society. And it happens in blatant and subtle ways. Um, But these ideas then become accepted as being natural and as having scientific basis when they really might come from an already existing social structure that's set up to privilege certain people for other reasons. Um, So there's this hypothetical example that I remember talking about in uh, evolutionary anthropology class that I took in college where, and it's just hypothetical, but it's like, okay, imagine that there's a society where it's a social norm for women to look down and to keep their heads down as like a sign of respect because in this society, men are considered superior to women. So over time, because of all the like looking down, women's necks start to stoop and the shape of their neck actually changes. Then let's say a scientist from another society comes in and sees this, sees that the women have stooped necks and thinks, oh, that must be why they're looking down all the time because they have the naturally stooped necks, right? It's just a basic like confusion of cause and effect. Um, But that's kind of where we're still at when we talk about sex differences we see that there's like different sex characteristics or differences between our, the the binary sexes that we've set up. Um, And we come up with all of these ways to justify those differences or the different treatment that we get in society or the differences in social status, instead of trying to actually identify the cause and then change the social situation. So especially with categories of identity, like sex and gender, Right, they become more pronounced over time because we have these systems set up to to reinforce this binary. And then they just sort of over time have the appearance of being natural, even if they were a result of the social structure. <laughs> um, so I wanted to end with this quote from Craig Owens, who was kind of like a think he was more like an art critic but kind of a postmodernist theorist and he's talking about like dominant narratives that we have and he's sort of just talking about a lot of different ones like capitalism and white supremacy and all of these different narratives so he says 
What function did these narratives play other than to legitimize a Western man's self-appointed mission of transforming the entire planet in his own image? And what form did this mission take, if not that of a man's placing of his stamp on everything that exists? That is, the transformation of the world into a representation with man as its subject. And I think this kind of speaks to what Darwin was doing, where he's coming up with this whole theory... Is it a coincidence that at the very, very top of his hierarchy that he's created is a white man? Probably not. So I, I think that quote kind of speaks to how the people who are doing the science, creating the categories, ends up having a really big impact on these theories um, and ideas that we hold. So I think in terms of implications for us as science teachers... You know, when we teach about evolution, we need to be talking about racism, sexism, classism, and how that's played in to um, that field. And we need to teach students how to identify when science is being used to justify or explain existing structures. And, you know, some of this does come from general skills, like just being a critical thinker, evaluating evidence, um, like making sure you can explain your reasoning. But... We can also, I think, look at historical examples and instead of just glorifying scientists or even like modern, you know, sort of pop scientists as being like geniuses, we can look at how their identities have impacted their work um, and whether there were like other ways of interpreting the data that they actually produce. Yay. Any thoughts? <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. I mean, I I think that goes right back to what I was saying about, you know, scientists not being able to imagine something other than their own experience. And unfortunately, the people in power are often also the people who are funded to do the research and funded to go out and collect the data. And then because they collected it, they get to interpret it. And that leads to these facts that are just data being interpreted by someone with a very singular view and then that ends up leading to things like Darwin saying that men just have a more natural genius than women yeah yikes yikes get wrecked (laughs) get wrecked Darwin (laughs) so that wraps up our last segment for today Uh, I hope you enjoyed hearing about the construction of biological sex, a little discussion about uh, boys and girls, women and men in STEM, and then learn of some things about Charles Darwin that you maybe didn't already know. Get wrecked, Darwin! (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say huge, huge, huge thanks to my guests today. Thank you for being here. Woo! Thank you so much for having us. It was fun. Yes, uh, shout out to our professor of our critical media literacy class for equipping us with the tools to uh, to talk about these kinds of things, to embark on this podcast, to make us think about the media we consume and what that means for us as scientists. Uh, and thank you so much, listeners, for making it through my very first episode that I recorded, and of course with the help of my wonderful peers. Um, so yeah, if you uh, want to continue the conversation, talk more, there's plenty of things to talk about. Feel free to send me a message um, on any of the social media platforms that you found this podcast, and hopefully you'll hear from us soon. <laughs>